Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, will Canada's new bail reform legislation actually do the job and put away repeat violent offenders? We'll have the latest on the new federal legislation. Plus, Canada has one of the most expensive healthcare systems in the world, yet our citizens are still being sent to Bellingham. We look at the two reasons for our healthcare lineups. Plus, pets and patios, more dogs are showing up in outdoor dining spaces, so why are some people not happy about it? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on repeat offenders. Today, the federal government unveiled a new bail reform bill that, if passed, would make it more difficult for violent repeat offenders to be immediately released after their arrest. Now, the bill is just seven pages long, and it comes after months of anger and frustration and uh, calls from taxpayers to update Canada's bail system. Now, there isn't a major city in BC that didn't want to see the federal government um, implement tougher laws with so many high-profile cases of violent crimes uh, committed by individuals who are out on bail. You only have to listen to CKNW on any given week, and you're hearing so many of those stories. Listen to Global BC or watch Global BC, uh, same sort of thing. It's a constant issue in major cities across this country. Here is Justice Minister David Lametti from earlier today making the announcement. We responded to what the Premier has asked for, which was reverse onus in Section 95 and increased investments in things like guns and gangs. And we went further by adding another reverse onus. We've added a community consideration. And in there, we have also directed judges or justices of the peace to look at an offender's violent record. As a matter of course. So even though it's not in the reverse onus provision, it is in the general directives that we've added to this piece of legislation. That was Federal Justice Minister David Lametti when he made the announcement. Premier David Eby. Eby was making a housing announcement in the Tri-Cities today. He was asked about this issue. Take a listen. I haven't had the opportunity myself to study the uh, proposal in detail, but I'm advised by staff that it addresses many of the concerns that has been raised, have been raised by British Columbia and by other premiers across Canada. And at this point, uh, our message to the federal government, uh, to all parties and to the Senate, uh, is that it is imperative uh, that this pass in this legislative session. Uh, It is critical to public confidence in our justice system. It is critical to safety in our communities. And we're calling on all parties and and the Senate to work together to get this legislation passed as quickly as possible. That was Premier David Eby speaking a couple of hours ago. Joining me now to talk about this new targeted bail reform is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Richard, thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure, Joe. Thanks for I was really um, uh, not taken aback, but it, listening to Premier David Eby, you really got the sense of the urgency that is uh, needed here to deal with this issue. Yeah, that was the one thing that I had heard as well coming out of this uh, legislation was that the provincial government is happy, but they want this to be done as quickly as possible. These changes are needed now. And it's important to explain what reverse onus means. In essence, what will happen is for these repeat, chronic, dangerous offenders, they will need to argue for why they should receive bail uh, rather than the Crown making the argument for why uh, the defence should you know, remain behind bars. So it changes uh, the argument. The other part that's important here, and you heard Justice, uh, um, Minister Lametti say this, was that uh, uh, there's a directive in place to look at someone's uh, criminal record before making that decision. We've seen the data here in B.C., and based on the directives here, there are still a lot of repeat chronic offenders being released uh, on bail, uh, and this review by judges should have an impact on that as well. So uh, there are substantial things here that 
could, uh, if put in place quickly, could make a difference in terms of what we are seeing, especially when it comes. And, and, you know, you've covered it well, Jaws, the cases of the same person being arrested hundreds of times over a few year period. Uh, this change could address uh, those worries that we've seen. I mean, ultimately, uh, as you and I talk and, 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 you know, our call, our listeners have called in on this issue. We're probably talking about 50 people in this province, yeah. maybe 100, yeah. uh, but they are the chronic repeat offenders. Yeah, and this, this likely will only make a difference in a handful of cases, and, but it's, it's keeping those individuals. And, and I don't think anyone is saying that we don't need the right, rights of our laws, the charter, all of this, that people you know, have the right to be heard by the judge, they have a right to have a lawyer represent them, all of these things. But right now based on the types of offenses that are being committed, there are instances where people commit the offense, uh, then are arrested, appear before a judge, are released on conditions for their next appearance, and while they are out, they recommit crimes, be it uh, violent crimes, be it property crimes, and considering the cycle that we're seeing and the sense that people are getting of a lack of safety, this is clearly an issue you know, that needed to be addressed, and, and this legislation is part of addressing that. Uh, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev uh, said he would have gone a step further. Uh, essentially, um, if he was prime minister, he would waive uh, the offender's rights to a bail hearing in the first place, as he says, jail, not bail. Uh, he loves it when he has a policy that rhymes sometimes, I think. But <laughs> it's a complex issue, and I always get a bit concerned when elected officials start uh, rhyming their policy statements but his core issue does address the frustration the public do have and that uh, this need these folks need to be put away for a longer period of time is there any concern that, that you know this would be challenged in court and and yeah. could be appealed and uh, eventually the, the the legislation is struck down because it's viewed as not protecting the rights of these people yeah if 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 they were to move forward with the suggestions from the conservative leader they would of course be struck down by the courts um there is a balance here that the court system and, by extension, politicians are trying to strike. That, you know, nobody wants to see these instances where people are committing crimes and then being released to then commit more crimes. There are larger systemic issues here as well, mental health primarily among them. And the province has tried to address that. And BC United has been rightly critical. The province has not done enough to bolster treatment beds because that's a huge part of the battle as well, is often uh, there are mental health issues connected with these repeat offences. And uh, that is why they are occurring at such a high frequency. So, you know, we're going to have this debate. This is, a, you know, more crimes that are committed... Uh, sadly helps Pierre Polyevre in his quest to become the next Prime Minister of this country. And so uh, we have not heard the last from him on this issue. Is, as crime will continue to be a problem in our communities, we'll just see how much a difference this legislation makes. Well, the, the concern is real. Uh, uh, and my final question to you, and we only have about a, you know, 40 seconds left here, but uh, Mr. Eby and his party have to be concerned between this issue, uh, the issue of decriminalization. 30 municipalities, I think, in B.C. now have some sort of uh, motion before council or have passed motions that says basically that there should be no, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, use of drugs uh, uh, in the outdoors, especially in parks and other public spaces. We've had uh, councillors on on this show as well on this issue. This has got to be a, a huge concern, one would argue, and probably one of the key weaknesses or challenges that the NDP government here provincially have. Yeah, 
Yeah, people need to see a difference. They need to feel a difference. They need to know that people are being held behind bars, and they want to see that. And so I believe the province will eventually pass a province-wide ban on the use of hard drugs in parks. Uh, I asked him about that today. He said the municipalities want to see collaboration here. So expect to see that at some point soon. Richard, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Josh. Thanks for having me. You're just joining us, so we were speaking to Global BC's Richard Zussman. We were chatting about the federal government uh, unveiling a new bail reform bill that, if passed, would make it more difficult for violent repeat offenders to be immediately released after their arrest. A uh, lot of stories from throughout British Columbia in regards to prolific chronic offenders, sometimes with a hundred different charges. Uh, from violent offences, sometimes from shoplifting or peat shoplifting. You've seen all those stories about broken windows, the inability of small business owners to actually go about their day and uh, and make a living, pay their employees, pay their taxes. Uh, It's not been easy for a lot of communities throughout British Columbia. Uh, Let's go to Scott, our open line. I know we've got Colin Middleton from the Nanaimo Public Safety Association who wants to speak on this issue. We're going to have him on, but let me just go to this one call first. Uh, Scott in Surrey. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you doing, Jazz? I'm doing very good. What's on your mind? Uh, I'm on my way into Rogers Arena. I'm a, an employee there. I'm a host. And we have a, we, uh, we, we deal with a lot of different individuals at every event. And every event, there's security and issues of evictions. And it's mainly alcohol-related. But the VPD have a say. Um, he did it last week. He did it tonight. And he'll do it next week. It's who they are. And so on a smaller, like, uh, you know, a specialized area like Rogers Arena, um, there's, they're not called repeat offenders, but certain individuals just can't handle their booze. And every time they go out, they have a fight. They did it last week, they did it tonight, they'll do it next week, it's who they are. So I imagine it can relate somewhat to a repeat offender. Scott, thank you for your call, appreciate it. You're right, I mean, in the sense, it does come down to personal uh, behavior, personal responsibility, uh, but, you know, you got to send a message to these folks as well that there are repercussions, that's been the issue. You, you, they go to jail, uh, they're, they're, they're let out on bail, and then they literally, I've talked to business owners and security people on Robson Street, they literally, these businesses have to talk to each other, these folks move literally store from store and it's that bad because they're absolutely there is no there are no repercussions uh, in regards to their actions let's go to colin middleton from the nanaimo public safety association uh, colin thank you so much for joining us oh colin do we have you there Oh, looks like we've uh, lost Colin. We'll see if we can get him back. Uh, we just had him there. Colin's played a significant role in regards to raising the issue in Nanaimo and the significant challenges small business owners in that community have been dealing with as well. Uh, let's go to the open line. Uh, let's go to Robin in Vancouver. Hi, Robin. Hello, uh, how do you? How can you get the mental health system, the justice system, and the housing crisis all on one turf instead of the issues fighting each other. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's the complexity of the issue, isn't it? That you have, it's a housing challenge. Uh, there are mental health and addiction issues. Uh, and, uh, of course, um, there is the issue of personal accountability and law. Uh, and you need all of them. You need all of them to do this right. Because, you know, there is some compassion that is required in this case. But I also believe that if you're going to continue to re- offend in a, uh, repeatedly, there have to be repercussions for your actions. And that's where the law comes in. And we haven't done very well when it comes to the law and demanding accountability from people for their personal decisions. Let's go back to Colin Middleton for the Nanaimo Public Safety Association. Looks like we got him back. Colin, thank you for joining us. 
Yeah, hey, can you hear me okay now? Yes, we can. That's great. Uh, so, first of all, your reaction to today's proposed legislation? Yeah, I mean, we're it's a step in the right direction. I mean, I think we can uh, quibble over whether it goes far enough or what, but I think at this point in time, we need uh, every inch we can in terms of uh, our elected officials, you know, acting in the best interest of the public. Mm-hmm. What has Nanaimo, what Tell me what you what you've seen over the last couple of years in Nanaimo. Well, I mean, it's been a deterioration uh, in the community in terms of people's feelings of of safety, uh, just going about their day to day. The constant um, vandalism, the threatening, intimidating behaviors, the open air drug use, the um, the theft, the robberies. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're at a point now where we need really all the help we can get uh, to to turn this around. Now, this puts the onus on some of these individuals and, and their legal counsel to pr- prove that the, they won't be chronic offenders, that, that they won't go out and commit crime. Uh, what else would you and, and your organization like to, to see? This is probably step one, but there are other steps along the way. Uh, what other things would you like to see in regards to addressing some of the challenges that you have in Nanaimo? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we, we describe this public safety emergency as the, the confluence or the overlapping of three social crises. It's mental health and addictions crisis, it's a housing and affordability crisis, and it's a judicial system and law enforcement crisis all happening at the same time. What we think needs to happen is that we need our elected officials and our public servants to act in a coordinated fashion all together at the federal, provincial, and municipal levels uh, to, to address the root issues that we're facing here. There's not really any where to go to try to uh, pretend like we can just keep uh, throwing some money around and and hoping that things will work out. It is a challenge, and I think you nailed it right on the head. Uh, nailed, nailed it right on the head in the sense that it's housing, it's law and order, um, uh, and it's mental health and addiction, and we have not paid. Uh, uh, enough attention to all three of them, never mind just one of them, and we're still dealing with those challenges now. It's going to take some time to fix, that's for sure. Colin, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Peter! Hi, um, my name is Peter. Peter! Peter! Peter, Peter Shashecki. You're listening to The Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. Joining me now is Peter Shashecki, registered financial planner and president of the Everything Financial Group. And today we're going to talk about to finance or not to finance. Hello, Peter. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Pretty good. I love this weather. and like, I, I'm good with keeping this for about oh, four or five months, as long as we don't have forest fires, I'm fine with it. Yeah, exactly. There's a few challenges up north, but uh, fingers crossed uh, they uh, are able to get through the next few days, especially up in Port St. John, which I think is probably the biggest challenge we have. But let's talk a little bit about um, what's before us. Uh, uh, generally, uh, you know, in a low interest rate in, uh, environment, uh, you know, people wouldn't uh, think twice about financing. We're in a different environment now. Walk me through and. Uh, you know, what people should be thinking about when they have to make a decision whether they should be taking on debt, particularly in this environment? Well, that's, that's the question. Is it really debt? Now, it depends on what type of interest rate you're talking, as you hit on for sure. But a lot of the most common one, obviously, we get is car payments or people buying cars. Well, why don't I just pay cash for a car? 
Um, but it's not debt if you have cash, because here's the thing that most people don't look at, is your net worth statement. Your net worth is still the same, whether you pay cash for the car or put the money in an account and then use some growth on that account to pay your car payments. Because at the end of the day, you're going to have money left over mm-hmm. if you do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, when you speak, speak to people today, uh, how much of a... Um uh, how much you know thinking are they doing in and around debt? Because there must be still a lot of concern. Just because interest rates have gone up so quickly, I'm sure they will slowly start easing downwards uh, uh, in, in, the, in the near future. But give me a sense of what you're hearing from, from your clients and, and from other folks. Well, the, a lot of people feel they're seeing that the worst of it is over. Even though the interest rates on your home equity line of credits or your variable mortgages have been the same now roughly since January, but it's almost like people are used to it. Not not saying they enjoy it, believe me, they don't enjoy it, but they figured, okay, if I can tread water for now and see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's no longer, let's say, an interest rate hike or something coming at me, then they go, okay, I can live with this for now with the, the caution optimism that it's going to start to go down in the next three, four, five months or so, or maybe even sooner. Mm-hmm. When people are looking at financing, I mean, it's hard to predict the future, but if you're in an environment right now, uh, how do you look at sort of debt financing in a sort of, at times, a system that in the last year has been quite volatile, last year and a half or so? How do you sort of not predict the next five years, but at least to think about research and consider what to do when the world can be quite volatile sometimes. Absolutely. So look at it. Look at it. It's your money. See what you're going to have left at the end of the day. So I'll give you. A, I did a real easy example. Someone asked me about a car, and they're going to spend fifty thousand on a car, and they're retired, so they thought I'll just pay cash. I said, well, if you're getting the, the car payment, in this case, there's still good deals out there, Jazz. I'm not a car guy. I don't own anything to do with cars or dealerships or anything. So no agenda here. But they were getting a deal of about in the high fours, 4.9%. The thing is you have to make assumptions. So they went, okay, let's assume the money I was going to spend for the car, I get 5% on average kind of rolling. And, and it's a good time to invest because the markets are down about 9% still from their peak. They have not recovered the full 23% they were down. So good time to buy. Yes, volatility. There's always volatility though. So at the end of the five-year period, this person still had, if they took the payments on the 50000 and made their car payments with the growth, mm-hmm. they still had a fair bit of their principal left over, but they own the car. And here's the thing. If you're going to put a chunk of money into something, put a chunk of money into something that will appreciate, not depreciate as soon as you start the engine and move it. Do you think people? I mean, I'm just looking at the way people think of money today, and and we've we've had an entire generation that has lived on cheap financing, uh, you know, That's once right, have. once in thirty years. Do you think that culture is going to change now, just because of where we're at? Um, not really, because it's it's a target of this government, and I'm I'm saying this optimistically, the next government <laughs> <laughs> to keep inflation down at a low level of around 2%. If you keep inflation down around 2%, um, you're going to have a low interest rate environment. It's the most, it's the best way for overall growth of an economy uh, in the end is that, and, and again, getting the car as an example, but any financing, 
you've got to look at the rate. And if the rate on the financing and the rate of your investments all hover and you shouldn't, don't let anyone talk to you into that they're going to make you a fortune in the financing world. If you use the safety margin of that 5%, your money's better off. And, and to use an example that's not, it's not reality for you and me, Jazz, but look at professional athletes. The ones who always end up broke are, or people who win lotteries are the ones who pay cash for everything. Mm-hmm. Learn to live on what you can earn on your money and keep your principal intact because if you had 50000 for a car, it took you quite a while to save $50,000, I would think. Mm-hmm. So if you just take it and put it into a car, how long is it going to take you to get that $50,000 back? Probably a long time. A long time. Absolutely. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. Have a great day. Yesterday, BC's health minister, Adrian Dix, announced the province had partnered with two clinics in Bellingham to meet the demands for cancer patients needing radiation therapy. Now, the government says the wait for cancer treatment in BC is too long presently, and up to 50 patients per week can be helped through the temporary partnership and reduce wait times, which would begin on May 29th. Now, the treatments uh, will take place at the North Cascade Cancer Centre, uh, or at Peace Health St. Joseph Medical Center in Bellingham over the next two years, that could add up to 10,000 patients. Think about that for a second, though. Here's Bellingham with a population of roughly 90,000. The, these two hospitals, there are these treatment centers there, have extra capacity for a province of 5 million. At Bellingham, only has 90 thousand people. Uh, yesterday, Health Minister Adrian Dix was on the show a couple hours after he made the announcement, and I asked him a, a very basic question. How did we get here? Take a listen to his answer. How did we get here? We yeah. got here because we're seeing, one, a significant increase in population, two, uh, a lack of investment really over 15 years in some areas of care, which we're fixing by our 10-year cancer plan and other initiatives we're taking, three, we have an aging population. And so what we wanted to do here is simply take advantage of circumstances that was there for many patients, which is to reduce wait times now while we take all the other measures to address the fundamental issue. If you look at the next 10 years, we're going to go from 30,000 cancer diagnoses in BC to 45,000. If you have cancer right now, as we speak, well, you want us to take action now, and that's what we're doing. Uh, that was Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, yesterday on the show. Um, he's right about growing population and an aging population. He said there was a lack of investment over the last 15 years. Uh, that was, of course, a shot to BC Liberals, even though uh, the NDP have now been in power for six years. We also had Brian Day on the show yesterday after uh, Mr. Dix's appearance. Now, you recall Mr. Day is an orthopedic surgeon who opened the Canby Surgery Center in 1996, arguing patients should have the right to pay for private care if weights in the public system are too long, potentially worsening their health outcome. Now, after a 13-year battle, the Supreme Court, Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear that appeal. Uh, we did bring uh, Dr. Day on yesterday to respond to the NDP government's announcement that they are sending British Columbians to essentially a private clinic in Bellingham. Take a listen. It's nothing new. You know, in the, in the early 90s, the NDP government of, um, of that era um, was sending patients down to Washington State for open-heart surgery. So there's nothing new in this, um, but it is further evidence and, and, in fact, proof of of the collapse of the system uh, in Canada, the health system. 
That was Dr. Brian Day. So here we are. Canadians don't have access to private clinics, but our government is offering to send you across the border to receive cancer treatment from, for, wait for it, from a private clinic. How do we fix the system? Joining me now to talk a little bit about the challenges our health care system, our public health care system has been under, is Christy Clark, former Premier of British Columbia. Christy, thank you for joining us. Nice to be back, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm sorry for the long introduction there, but I wanted to sort of lay out sort of what we've been focusing on and touching on in the last 24 hours or so. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on sending British Columbians across the border uh, for cancer treatment. Well, I think it's a sign of um, how when the system is under collapse, and I think that Brian Day is right about that, there's no doubt that our system is nearing a really critical juncture. I mean, I think it's if you had to ask me what I am most worried about for Canada right now, I would say the access to our healthcare system because it is collapsing. So I think um, healthcare systems collapsing. And the problem is, really, that governments across the country, and I think, you know, to some extent, citizens across the country, aren't really willing to entertain some of the um, possible solutions to this. And I'll give you a good, a, the best example I have, which is we in Canada have the second most expensive, on a GDP basis, healthcare system in the Western world, except for the U.S. Every other European country, mostly, have uh, have a a less expensive system than we do. They have better outcomes than we do. The only country in the world that has worse outcomes is the United States. And for some reason, politicians um, tend to say, well, if we make any change in our system, then we're just going to Americanize Canadian health care. Well, why don't we think about trying to aspire to not being American, but trying to aspire to do some of the things that Europeans do, including people in the U.K.? Why not? None of them have a perfect system. But, you know, in Sweden, in the UK, in France, in Germany, in Switzerland, in Holland, they all get better outcomes than we do at about the same or less price. They have better access for citizens. We should be thinking about what they do and aspiring to try and be better like them rather than worrying that if we make any change, we'll only become worse and become like the Americans. You know, many years ago, I was uh, waiting for a flight and uh, there was a, a, a former Minister of Health uh, for British Columbia that was catching the same flight. We ended up talking and, and the individual told me, he says, you know, we spent about $2 million an hour on health care. And I said, well, how do you fix this? And this is probably many years ago now. He says that it's actually got to get worse before it gets better. And I think what he was trying to say was that the federal government's got to have the will to make the, the legal changes, which would allow provinces to actually deal with these issues in a much more uh, holistic and fundamental way. Fundamentally, the federal government is really what's holding it back, this kind of change. They are politically alarmed that, you know, Canadians are going to worry if there's any, you know, if there's any kind of change in the way we provide health care. So what they do is they say, well, if you don't do exactly the way we want it, then we're going to fine you and it's going to cost you a lot of money and it's going to be self-defeating because you won't end up saving any money with any of your changes. And, you know, I don't know why we live in a country that's a federation if the federal government is always in the position of saying, well, you can't actually innovate. You can't try and do different things from different things differently from any other province. But jazz, the thing is, is that if you go to most European countries, you will find they have universal health care. Nobody's turned away based on severity of condition or, or income. Everybody's covered, but they do allow some private um, 
it, and it depends on the country, but sometimes it will be they allow some private providers within the public system. Mm-hmm. They allow private insurance to compete with public insurance. We're the only country in the world where not only do we say uh, government has to provide, has to have a monopoly on all the basic insurance for you know most of the, the central health care um, uh, healthcare coverage, but government also has to be the main provider for everything. It's just, you know, it doesn't, it can't work. It creates this huge bureaucracy that's extremely expensive and is really utterly resistant to change. And you talk to people who work within the system, they'll just tell you how frustrated they are that none of the changes that they see need to be made can be made. And it's a result of our ideological um, uh, zest to, to, you know, kind of fight any incursion on a government monopoly on services and the provision of insurance. You raised a little bit of issue of the public and private insurance. What would a sort of a, 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 an effective system look like to you here in British Columbia? We case of, hey, Jazz needs a hip replacement. He, he, he gets the, 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 the assessment from the, the, the specialist. He can then go to a private clinic, slap down his care card. He never sees a bill. It's built, the public system is built, something of that sort. Yeah, you could absolutely you could do that, and you know, there's systems like one in, ones in Holland where not only can you go to a private clinic that's fully publicly funded, um, you can go to a private insurer where you are also going to be publicly funded, and just like in Canada, you can top it up like you can with your Blue Cross and all that. But the, what happens in that situation is you get some incentive to improve because if people, as citizens, as patients can choose where we want to go get our care and how we want to be covered for our care, we can choose what's best for us. And that, you know, that incentive toward uh, it, uh, competition gives me choices. Mm-hmm. And it gives, it also creates innovation within the system because people have every incentive to try and improve, to attract me. And you know what? We need a healthcare system that's focused on the patient not on the giant systems of hospitals and on government bureaucrats and, you know, trying to keep everything exactly the same. What about patients? What about those people who are suffering from cancer and having to go from, I don't know, um, North Vancouver all the way across the border to try and get their care when they're already sick? I mean, that's just not good enough. Mm-hmm. What do you say to the argument that, look, if you bring in a private system, Private systems generally target less complicated procedures. They may do knee and hip surgeries. Uh, and so those are simpler, more easier to do. And they also will take away talent from the public system. That the, the private system isn't necessarily the great fix. Well, I think on that first thing, that can happen. But in a carefully regulated system like the ones that they have in many countries in Europe, you can oblige, um, you know, healthcare to healthcare systems to provide certain kinds of care. I mean, they, that can be part of the agreement that they do. And, you know, as they're proving in Bellingham, you can still get cancer treatment, which is pretty expensive um, in, in private settings. And apparently the government can find a way to afford it. So there are ways to compel that. And, you know, there may be, we may decide that the most kind of complex services do need to remain entirely in a government monopoly. But, I mean, does every single government service need to be provided exactly in the same way and exactly the same kind of um, facility? Or can we find ways to allow that to differentiate across the system? And in that, I, you know, to me, that's not letting go and privatizing. And when you look at other countries in the world, they are all 
experiencing exactly the same doctor and nursing shortage that Canada is. We are no worse off and no better off mm-hmm. uh, because we have a public system. It's it's uh, that's a separate problem, and theirs isn't any worse than ours is. Christy, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, it was my pleasure, Jazz. Thank you, and I hope everybody enjoys this beautiful sunshine, great weather we have these days in Vancouver. BC Ferries today said that dogs on leashes and cats in carriers traveling uh, with their owners on the Horseshoe Bay, Departure Bay, uh, Comox, Powell River, and Earls Cove Saltry Bay routes will be allowed on the upper outside decks on selected uh, vessels. Uh, they are running a 68 survey uh, on board for both customers and employees to gain feedback on the new pet policy. So that'll be uh, dogs on leashes and cats and carriers traveling with their owners on the Horseshoe Bay, Departure Bay, Comox, Powell River, and Earls Cove Saltry, uh, Saltry Bay routes. It's no surprise considering about 38% of Canadian households today own a cat, while 35% uh, own a dog. Now, we bring this up uh, today because there's a significant debate occurring in the United States uh, in regards to patios uh, in uh, and uh, pets, specifically when it comes to outdoor dining spaces. Uh, nearly half of U.S. states allow canine dining outdoors, but the issue uh, is far from settled, with many diners and restaurants pushing back against the increasing presence of dogs. Um, what is interesting is here in British Columbia in 2020, there was a Victoria resident uh, who uh, took his Wheaton Terrier to uh, a pub uh, called Beagle, of all places, uh, but uh, was learned very quickly that uh, here in British Columbia, the regulations at that time barred live animals from anywhere food is served, uh, for, except for the exception of guide dogs, fish in aquariums, or other animals that a health officer determines will not pose a risk uh, of a health hazard. Now, that has changed. You can take your uh, dog to, uh, obviously, a patio uh, and enjoy the beautiful weather, of course, especially this week. But it also comes down to, of course, behavior of the animal. Joining me now to talk a little bit about pets and patios is Ian Tostson, president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good afternoon, Ian. Hi, Jazz. You framed that well. That well, was well said. <laughs> I've tried because there's a story in Associated Press uh, that moved last night that I was reading. It was quite interesting. And this morning, BC Ferries sent us this uh, uh, press release, an uh, interesting number. 54% of millennials view themselves as pet parents. So this is a, a, not just, a, you know, we always loved animals, but I think it's a growing trend. Uh, I'm just curious, um, what has been sort of the feedback from your members in regards to um, uh, patios and pets? pets? You know, it hasn't been an issue, although I think uh, post-pandemic is going to probably, re, uh, you know, come about and uh, more discussion because we all have more pets. Um, so you're right. So in British Columbia, you can take and have, your, you can, or if you're a restaurant owner, you can have a policy that allows pets to be on your patio. And best to have a policy, you know, make sure there's good signage that say we allow pets making sure that, you know, you isolate the pets, not, you know, and keep the pets away from food. Funny enough, some uh, places in, in, uh, in, in I think, in, uh, in Ontario actually offer a dog menu. So there's some incremental opportunities to offer uh, food for your dog. Now, in B.C., they can't eat off of any of the plateware that is, uh, is, is reusable in a restaurant, but those are details. But it really comes down to, uh, to jazz, the, the judgment of the owner as to where and who their customer is. Now, I was just um, 
getting a haircut this afternoon, and I did a poll of everybody in there, and basically everybody said, yeah, dogs in restaurants or dogs in patios are fine. And then someone said, well, hang on a second now. Maybe not in a fine dining situation, but certainly in a brewery and certainly in a coffee place and a casual restaurant. So I think it's really up to the owner to establish a clear policy, a clear direction, uh, you know, and if you feel there's a market for dogs, then, then by all means do it. But as you said, not a lot, not everybody likes dogs. And, and it's not because they don't like dogs. Some people have had difficulties with dogs. So you really got to be careful. And, and, of course, there's some places that say our policy, because they can do this, is that we don't allow dogs mm-hmm. on our patios. And that then becomes one the, the guest's determination whether they want to go or not. So... And then, of course, you, you nailed it, too, when you said, you know, service dogs are allowed inside. That's a whole different situation. But it, we're talking about patios here. So it's really about does this enhance your business? Does it enhance the guest experience? Um, you know, I talked to somebody today and said, man, we just came back from traveling in California. And we would have been in real trouble because, we were, you know, we, didn't, we couldn't leave our dog in the car. So we would go find places that we had dog-friendly patios. So there's those sort of accommodations that I think that really work well for a lot of people. Yeah, I was reading uh, when I'm uh, mentioning that Associated Press story, uh, uh, there was a, a place in Hilton Head, South Carolina called the Salty Dog Cafe, and they allowed dogs on their patio when they first opened in 1987, but two years later, they banned them. They said too many dogs were barking through meals, fighting, lying in walkways, and stealing <laughs> yeah. hot dogs from kids' plates. Uh, <laughs> so I think they now have, um, uh, they said that if, if, if diners do object, that that, that particular uh, um, establishment points them to a separate dog-friendly deck, uh, yeah. which I think is probably the best way to go. But I, well, I guess it does come to that, doesn't it? I mean, there's going to be own, there will be owners that just don't have well-behaved dogs uh, at the end of the day. We have, we have two golden retrievers that you'd love. I mean, the most lovable things in the whole world. But as soon as they get around food, and it's a characteristic of golden retrievers, uh, they'd be in the kitchen. I mean, <laughs> they would be going <laughs> table to table looking for food and being friendly and doing all that stuff. They're probably not very appropriate, that type of dog. Smaller dogs are fine. Um, I uh, was in a little cafe checking, because when you called me this morning, uh, in, in, in North Vancouver, a little coffee place, and, mm-hmm. and they have a patio. And they say, yeah, people bring the dogs, but they're really respectful because they, when they want to order, they don't, have, uh, they don't have table service in this little patio. And um, they just open the door and hold the dog outside and yell out their order. They bring out the order, and it's great. So, again, it's all dependent. Um, you can get dogs that don't like each other, and I've, we've, we've seen that as dog owners where something just triggers a dog and two dogs don't like each other. They could be the nicest dogs in the whole world, but there's chemistry there that doesn't work. And so, you know, I think, I think as a dog owner, you really have to think, is this something I want to uh, do? Is, is my dog ready for this? Um, somewhere I read, you know, you really have to have a dog that's used to noises, uh, being able be around food for lengths of time and to be calm and not all dogs are like that so uh, you know i think this is again it's one of those things where you've got to a balance it between you know the, a reasonable guest which i think most people are and and the, and the business uh, operator trying to uh, accommodate and uh, and also you know what's good for their business yeah and you have probably haven't had any difficulty with guide dogs i would think they're so well behaved yeah. and trained yeah, that's a really good, you know, and, and no, we haven't, although I will raise this just as a bit of a, you know, so um, we have a duty to accommodate, um, you know, guide dogs and people with disabilities inside the restaurants. So There's no question at all about that. 
Where we have a little bit of an issue is that people try have tried to game the system a bit by coming in and saying, "Well, this dog, you know, is is uh, you know, I need it," and they try to do that. It's quite clear the dog isn't isn't a certified trained dog, and uh, we've in fact we've had two incidents of that happen in Victoria recently. We had the restaurants call us and and we said, you know, you're going to be really diplomatic about that because. You know, it really comes down to not the disability of the person, but it really becomes down to the certification under the circumstance with the dog because if a health officer walks in and to Jazz's restaurant and says, you have a dog in here, you know, have you checked it out and it's not, then you're in a little bit of an issue there. So thankfully it doesn't happen very often. And, and the pressure of people wanting to take dogs inside is certainly less now and the fact they can have dogs outside in patios. Well, this is the week to do it, that's for sure. Ian, thank you so yeah. much. Thanks, Jazz. A new study from uh, Columbia University focuses on the implication enforcers in the hockey world are facing, including dying younger uh, than their peers. Now, data was collected from over 6,000 players uh, from 1967 uh, to 2020 Now, what they found is that 90% of the players are still alive, but the ones who have passed showed a very stark contrast in mortality rates. The study says that the average age of deaths for the enforcers who have died was 47 compared to non-fighters at 57 uh, 11 of the 21 enforcers' uh, deaths were linked to something called CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a progressive brain, uh, brain degeneration believed to be caused by repeated impacts to the head over the course of many, many years. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this new study and the impact on fighting in hockey is John Green, lawyer at John Michael Green Law Corporation. John, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jeff, how are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, when you first heard of this study and the results that came from it, what, what went through your mind? Well, I was a hockey player and I was a goaltender, so you sit there in hockey games when you're a goaltender and watch kind of these meatheads fight each other and wonder when the game's going to start, usually. So that was <laughs> that. The first thing that crossed my mind was, uh, why is fighting still in hockey at all? But uh, the second part was there's a whole bunch of uh, lawsuits and, and WHL... Ontario Hockey League, Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, and then there's the minor leagues in the United States. Uh, and, and the lawsuits uh, relate to the brain injuries, but there's also some, actually there's an interesting one on, uh, I think, WHL, and it's some players were alleging basically that they were groomed to be fighters, and uh, as a result, they have all kinds of different injuries, and some of those injuries include injuries to their brains. So this fight kind of fits in with that that theme that, uh, fighting's kind of an ignorant thing to continue to do in hockey. And uh, when I was getting ready for today, I was actually looking at some of the fight stats. And you have the Quebec Major Junior League seems to have done a lot to make it so that uh, fighting wasn't isn't a part of the sport anymore. They penalized it heavily and uh, with game suspensions and things like that. And what you've seen is a reduction in fighting in Quebec, but in on or here in the WHL, which is. Uh, kind of a league near and dear to me. My dad used to play in it. The WHL is still like an an outlier. You have kids that are like 17 years old that are having 12 fights a season. Uh, I I was watching a fight on uh, hockeyfights.com and, you know, between a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old just getting the tar beat out of them by a 19-year-old. I think there's going to be a come-to-God moment for some of these teams when some of these players that are – coming along later on they 
lawyer up and uh, after having serious injuries and they start suing coaches and start suing the clubs and the corporations that own the clubs. Well, I mean, so... And, think- and this, yeah, and the study sort of fits in with that because it, it demonstrates that, I, I mean, what ends up happening in a trial like this is you can't just throw the study in front of a judge, but what you can say is, look, we have data that shows the more fights that a person's in, some of this is kind of seems really logical, right? The more fights a person's in, the more they're exposed to punches to the head and um, and here are some of the things that come with that later in life and some of the things that come with later in life that the study showed were more uh, fatal car accidents, uh, brain injuries, that, like CTE, for example, and then uh, suicides and addiction. So these are some of the serious outcomes. So right? in this case, do you think this is the beginning of ending, beginning of the end for fighting in hockey? I mean, this study strengthened that case? I don't know how... I. I don't know how they can justify uh, fighting in hockey anymore. Like they, I, I think some people think that it fills the seats, but it, when I was watching the videos of these fights in the WHL, like the thing that I really stood up for, stood up for me was there was almost nobody at these games anymore. And so if, if that's the direction these people uh, think that uh, they need to go to encourage people to come, it's, some of these people need to do a, a check their heads. And, and one of the things that the study actually makes – clear is right at the very end of it they talk they talk about some of these myths around fighting like you know having fighter you know fights reduces the number of serious uh, injuries in hockey and, and they say like no that's not the truth there's been studies that have debunked some of these myths that you know guys like don cherry throw it in uh, coach's corner mm-hmm. uh, so so i think that you know it's a bit it's a major issue in canada like uh, I, my son plays soccer. I played hockey my whole life, but my son plays soccer, and I, I couldn't imagine, frankly, sticking him in hockey anymore. Like it, to me, it seems like it's a sport that maybe is uh, at its day. Yeah, I mean, I, when when you talk about other sports, I mean, and the NFL's had its concussion challenges, and you know, other sports have other concerns as well. NBA, Major League Baseball, but generally, let's say, let's look at the four major sports: NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball. They still eject players for fighting, dole out significant fines. Yep. The NHL still implicitly sanctions fighting. I mean, there may be less of it compared to the days of, compared to the seventies and eighties, no doubt. But it is yeah, still I mean, implicitly yeah. sanctioned. It does it not? I, I mean, the Todd Bertuzzi stuff. Like, yeah, I, I, we might be getting to the point where the message is, is gotten out to enough people in hockey that it's uh, needs to end, but. You know, in the junior leagues, and, and maybe not the WHL, but in, in the junior leagues back east, that it's not a thing that's on. And, and what's going to end up happening is it should filter up to the NHL. But when you get to the NHL, I was looking at there's a player out in uh, uh, was a first round draft pick. I think he's a defenseman. You know, the guy had 12 fights this year. Like, you know, if 50 is the number, would that they're, the magic number they're looking at, uh, where you have all these problems, and it's probably even an earlier, a lower number than that causes problems, but. You know, 50 is the magic number. This guy's going to be there in like four seasons, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if he isn't already there, you know, like if he, we hadn't, didn't even look at his junior junior track record. So all of this stuff just kind of, it opens the door to asking the questions, you know, like if he comes around and, and sues later on, uh, you know, sues the NHL or sues the Junior Hockey League later on, they're going to say, okay, well, how did you track, you know, the number of fights? And, you know, when you get to the number of fights, did you ever come up to him and say to him, like, look, you remember, maybe you better cut it down because you could have all these problems later in life. And, and it's not just the brain injuries and uh, the psychological damage that's caused by the brain injuries. Uh, it's, you know, like these guys actually wreck their hands. And the chronic pain associated with punching some guy in the helmet, you know, a uh, hundred times uh, in a game and then, you know, doing it 12 times a season, like you know, over a cruise span, that's, 
these are serious things and, and feeds into the opioid addiction. Lots of these players are opioid addicted. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that you use that example that you uh, saw a fight on hockeyfights.com and uh, the old days of Don Cherry, I think it was, what was the video he was battling? Rock'em, sock'em, Rock'em, hockey. rock'em sock'em. I mean, yeah. loved it when yeah. we were kids, right? Like, yeah, yeah. We didn't know what was happening really. But Bob, Bob Probert was, is probably the best example, right? And this guy had so many problems later in life, you know, after leaving hockey and, um, and I'm not sure if it was his, they donated his brain, but certainly a couple of the NHL players' brains after. And, you know, they have the, the, all the markers of CTE, you know, same kind of things that you see in the NFL players like Junior Seau that, you know, like committed suicide. Another guy that, you know, when we were younger, watched NFL football, and he's like the guy we loved, you know. He was hit people, he was a great football player, but, uh, you know, these sports do lots of damage too. Yeah, I mean, when when you look at the numbers, uh, they said that uh, those that were in a significant amount of fights died at the average age of forty-seven, compared to yeah. non-fighters at fifty-seven. Even fifty-seven, fifty-seven's young, you know, and that's yeah. part of the challenge of, of of uh, I guess longer-term uh, playing hockey. And, and, and I'm sure football, in many ways, would be similar in the sense of the damage and and sort of the the wear and tear on your body. And I mean, you could probably argue for basketball as well. I mean, that's part of being an athlete. But even when you see the, the when the study says when it comes to mortality rates, non-fighters at 57, man, that is young. That is really young. Yeah, and I, I mean, I I do sexual battery cases. You know, like guys that beat women and uh, you know, thought worse. Uh, and you look at like the Bobby Hall stuff and, you know, like the people that lived with him lived in absolute hell. And, I, you know, I have to think part of it has to do with at least partially. I mean, if it's maybe partially psychological, but the other side is that these guys spent their whole life with their helmets off and getting whacked in the head, and, you know, and, and were encouraged to fight by their coaches and encouraged to fight by their, you know, the people that gave them their contract and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, hockey's moving in a different direction, hopefully. Um, it, I think it has to, or you're going to start seeing some of these clubs uh, get taken down by some pretty big lawsuits. Yeah, absolutely. John, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You bet, Jeff. Let's revisit one of our stories from 4 o'clock. We reported today that BC Ferries says dogs on leashes and cats in carriers traveling with their owners on the Horseshoe Bay, Departure Bay, Comox to Powell River, and Earl's Cove, Sultry Bay routes will be allowed on the upper outside decks on selected uh, vessels. Uh, this, of course, after um, uh, surveys that they've uh, done with customers. And it uh, doesn't surprise me, of course, when an estimated 38% of Canadian households own a cat, while 35% uh, own a dog. Now, today's announcement from BC Ferries comes as uh, there's a lot of do- uh, uh, conversation in the United States uh, about uh, 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 taking pets to uh, outdoor uh, uh, patios uh, and restaurants as well. About half the states in, in the U.S. have laws in and around uh, restaurants uh, allowing um, uh, dogs uh, uh, at the patio. But this is an ongoing conversation. And, of course, here in British Columbia, we talked about the changes that came in in two, 2020, uh, allowing, of course, um, uh, animals uh, at uh, patios as well. But prior to that, um, live animals uh, were not allowed anywhere where food is served except for the exception of guide dogs and fish in aquariums as well. But joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, dogs and patios is Rebecca Bredder. She's an animal rights lawyer. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. 
Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know you've had a very busy day in court, but I appreciate you making <laughs> making time for us. Uh, you know, my conversation just in front of the courthouse, so you may hear birds in the background. Okay, there you go. Uh, well, you should be sitting at a patio doing this interview, so maybe next time we'll uh, we'll try to arrange that for you. Uh, but it's interesting. In the United States, uh, you have um, you know, an 87 million U.S. households now have a pet, up from 85 million in 2019 alone. So uh, we all love our animals, we love our pets, but it is an ongoing conversation, even in the U.S. right now, whether or not mm-hmm. to allow. Uh, dogs uh, at uh, outdoor patios. Your thoughts on this? Are we, uh, you know, sort of that uh, location here in British Columbia where we've done the right thing, or do you think more needs to be done in regards to making restaurants pet friendly? Oh, I think way more needs to be done to make restaurants uh, pet friendly. First of all, let me say great on BC Ferries for for making that decision to allow pets on on the upper decks, and hopefully it's not just going to be a pilot project, but they'll. We'll keep that for ongoing because I think many of us who go on on the ferry with our dogs, a lot of them get really scared and frightened and they get anxiety. So I think it'll be really good. And and the majority of people really are responsible. You'll have the bad apples for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think overall it's a good thing. So yay for BC Ferries. And and for restaurants here, I mean, I I do think that more needs to be done because, and I was just talking to, to one of my experts in my cases, Dr. Rebecca Ledger, who we, we totally agree on this point, which is that you, I'm sure you often see uh, when you're walking on the street, people are walk, uh, sitting on a patio outside and their dog is leashed up on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Close to them, uh, maybe right next to them, but just on the other side of the patio. And I cringe when I see that. I mean, I understand that people want to take their dogs with them. But it's such a liability for both the dog guardians and, and potentially the restaurants, too, because that's when dog bites happen. It's actually a lot safer to have the dogs with you because they're less anxious and you have more control over them when they're actually right beside you. Mm-hmm. So in terms of public safety, I actually think it's safer to have dogs with you than tying them up on, on, uh, like on the patio and leaving them on the sidewalk. And I also think that I appreciate that not everyone will agree. And I appreciate that will, it's a very emotional thing, right? You either really agree with it or you disagree with it. And I think we have to accept that uh, there are dogs are not going anywhere. And we're going to be seeing more and more people having dogs with them. And they want to bring dogs with them when they go out. It's, we're not the only ones. You look around the world and places like New York City, California, you go to places in Europe like the UK. And dogs of France, dogs are allowed in the restaurants. And I, I could appreciate that some people are scared of dogs. I could appreciate that some people may be allergic to dogs. So I think what restaurants really need to be mindful of is if they're going to allow pets, dogs on on um, on their patios, put a sign up and put a sign up dogs allowed. Mm-hmm. Make it known that there could be animals on the premises, so that way you give people the option of whether to go in or not. What do you think of the argument that people make that look, uh, you know, dogs will drool, they may fight another dog. Uh, I mean, these are not going to happen all the time. Uh, there have been complaints by some servers that they've seen rest, uh, dogs relieve themselves in restaurant patios, um, uh, all those types of things. I mean, do you think that? that that's something we should be concerned about? Or do you think it's just one of those things that, look, it may happen, but at the end of the day, it, it's not a regular thing? I, I think it may happen. I'm not going to say, oh, no, that never happens. Of course it's going to happen. And, of course, you may have a dog play. Of course, you may have an accident. But you know what? 
look at us. I'm a parent. I could say this, so don't judge me <laughs> for saying this. But what about kids in restaurants? I think kids make far more of a mess in restaurants than, than, than a dog potentially would. And so if we deal with messes done by kids and every now and then, we could deal with what may happen with dogs. I think really when it comes down to it, it's, it's common sense and the responsibility of the users of the premises, whether it's a kid, uh, whether you're going there with a kid, whether you're going there with a dog, we have to be respectful of our spaces. We have to be respectful of each other and use our common sense. Yeah, I mean, it was funny. Uh, our, our, my colleague, uh, Jill Bennett, was on uh, before this program, and we were chatting a little bit about uh, this segment, and, and she told me, and she's got a great dog, uh, very quiet, uh, stays underneath the table, but there was an, another guest, I guess, just recently at a, at a patio that she was visiting, and, and the dog was got on the table, eating off the plate, all the things you probably shouldn't be doing, but it, it came down to the owner, once again, um, who should be probably doing a better job in regards to, uh, you know, one, watching the dog, and two, perhaps Perhaps in that case, that dog may not have been, it may not, may not have been the right decision to bring the dog uh, to the patio. But I guess, once again, it comes down to the owner at the end of the day. Yes. I mean, you have to know your own dog, right? You have to know your own companion animal who you want to bring. And so if you, if you think that your companion, if, if your dog, for example, is reactive with other dogs, hopefully you're not going to bring that dog to, to a restaurant because that's just stressful for your own dog, let alone the potential liability it may cause for others. Mm-hmm. As well. So, yeah, I mean, when it really comes down to it, let's use our common sense and be respectful of one another. I don't think we need uh, a lawyer or someone in authority, you know, like someone to give a restaurant a fine to tell us this. But I think we could use our common sense. And I think we should really give much more. We should do much more yeah. and it's, allow pets on patios. Yeah, Period. Ian Tossinson from the BC Restaurant Association was on uh, last hour and he says well, some restaurants are actually offering uh, doggy treats on their menu. So it's an opportunity to I actually... Yeah, so it's an opportunity to find you have another customer, so you might as well cater to them right at the end of the day. So that was very, very smart Ab- at the end of the day. Absolutely. You have a kid's menu in well, a lot of restaurants. Exactly. Rebecca, thank you so much for your, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.